How many of you have heard it said, all things work together for good? Raise your hand. Whoa. Just about everyone. All things work together for good. This gets thrown out a pretty good bet. The verse that we're looking at today is Romans 8.28. Romans 8.28 and says, We know that for those who love the Lord, that all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. It's interesting in this series, we are taking favorite verses, verses that our congregation voted as, uh, as your favorite verse, plus we took a look at Gateway uh, on, the, on the Bible that gets uh, on the Internet, that gets so many uh, hits to it, the Version Bible app, all of these, what were their top verses? We all put them together, and they pretty well matched with ours. And the first three verses that we've talked about, this being the third, have all been ones that at times have been misunderstood or misinterpreted or misused. I believe, just in my opinion, that this verse has probably been misinterpreted and misused more than any other other verse. Uh, because in all kind of settings, people will just throw it out and say, hey, well, you know everything's going to work for good. You know, the Bible says everything works for good. So everything, everything's just going to work for good. And some people see that and say, well, that means everything that comes into my life is, is going to be good. But you know, that's just not true. People lose jobs. Children get hurt. People get cancer. Retirement funds lose their value. Loved ones die. Marriages fail. These are not good things themselves. We don't rejoice over funerals. We don't cheer for hospitalizations. We don't celebrate financial collapse. You know, these, these are not good things by themselves. So oftentimes this verse gets misinterpreted that everything comes is, is good. But then it also gets misused to where this thought about, hey, all things work together for good, we just sort of glibly throw it out in some difficult situations. You know, when someone's house is being foreclosed and you just walk up and say, hey, all things work together for good, that's just not a word of comfort at that time for that person. When you're standing at the casket over a child or a spouse and someone comes through line and says, well, you know, all things work together for good, that's, that just doesn't really bring a lot of comfort. Because what it does is, in essence, is you're trying to say, you don't need to sorrow, you don't need to grieve, let me just suck that right out of you and just say, hey, everything's going to work for good. Everything should be okay. You should cheer up. It just doesn't work that way. Uh, let me ask this question. How many of you have ever had somebody throw that portion of a verse to you and you thought it was an inappropriate time for them to do that? Just raise your hand. Anybody here? Whoa, pretty good number. Now, as you put your hand down, how many of you when you had that verse shared, it was by the person sitting next to you? Will you raise your no? <laughs> <laughs> on there. Now, this is an amazing promise in Scripture. It's an amazing promise. And when we gain a good understanding as to what this promise means, then I think we'll also see that there are some wonderful places that this promise is to be shared and used with others. Let's just don't misinterpret it, and let's just don't miss it. Favorite things. We talked about favorite things, and I've had the privilege of being able to share with you some favorite things that I have. For a number of years, I enjoyed playing tennis. It was um, uh, something I enjoyed. It was a lot of fun. And um, I had an opportunity 
back in uh, 2002 to go to Colorado and to be a part of a tennis camp that was led by a man by the name of, of Dennis Ralston. Now, at that camp, I ended up buying a new tennis racket. This is in, in 2002. I got this racket, and I, this is the one I still have and, and haven't played much lately, but if I did, this is the one that I'd come at you with. Or if you attacked my house, this is the one I would come after you with. So um, so while I was at this tournament, I had, I had or excuse me, at this camp, I had a, uh, had a racket. And then as I was playing some, Dennis Ralston said, won't you use my racket? And so when I used his racket and it, it began to feel pretty good, he says, there's one just like it. We can come over here and, and get you set and this could be your new racket. And it was a great camp. And part of the reason I went is because of a man by the name of Dennis Ralston. Now, for some of you youngsters, you don't know who, who Dennis Ralston is. But Dennis Ralston started playing tennis at age five. And at age 17, he won Wimbledon doubles. And so I think we should have a picture of, of him. Dennis Ralston, he won Wimbledon doubles at age 17. In the 1960s, for three consecutive years, he was United States' number one player. And so this guy was a stud. And he, was, he had, they had great expectations. He didn't meet some of people's expectations, but he did so good that he was inducted into the International Tennis Hall of Fame. And I believe that that date was 1987. And the reason I know that is because another T-shirt. I have a T-shirt here. And uh, this came from their camp. And uh, at the camp, we did drills. And if you won the drill, you did the best, they would give you something. Well, I won one of the drills. And so he gave me this shirt. And it's the Dennis Ralston Tennis. And it's got him sign, his signature, Dennis Ralston Hall of Fame 87. So I'm assuming it's 87. I've never washed this shirt. Some of you say back up then, will you? Because I was fearful that the uh, autograph uh, would be washed off. There's another reason. The only shirt they had was an XXL, okay? And I told Janice, I hang this in my closet because if it ever fits, I better start playing tennis again. Because this is not a good sign. So it was an experience to be there with Dennis Ralston. And so at the, uh, at the camp... When I was there with him, Dennis was about 60 years old, okay? Dennis was about, uh, about 60 years old. And I learned a little bit about his story. I learned that he was a, was a man of faith. And when I did a little bit more research, I found out that in 1972, his wife and three kids were driving in California, and there was a mudslide that came, and only by a miracle were they not killed in that mudslide. And so what she did was as she was driving back in the neighborhood, she saw a sign at a church that was advertising a, um, a Bible study. So she went to it. And when she went to that Bible study, she heard God's word. She made a decision. She received Christ. Dennis says as he would come back home, he noticed a change in his wife. And as he noticed a change in his wife, he went to that same church, made decision for Christ, and was baptized and became a believer. And he was trying to live through that faith. Interesting story is that as they were growing up, as he was growing up in an athletic family, his father told him, I do not want you to play football because it's bad for your knees. 
just play tennis. In his life, he's had 16 surgeries on his knees. <laughs> it's kind of one of those parent things that you sort of wish you could take back, don't you? But not only that, but he's had two knee replacements. And he had a knee replacement in 1999. And so when I was there at the camp, he was kind of moving around, and I'm watching a guy who's had a couple knee replacements. He's doing moving around pretty good. And then I really didn't keep up with him. And months ago, as I was just going through wondering about whatever happened to him, I went to a uh, headline that says, Recovering from an Amputation. And as I read on it, Dennis Ralston in 2010 had to go to a surgeon to um, fix a foot. They had to reshape uh, his foot. He was having a real problem in his left foot. In the midst of the surgery, staph infection set in, and within a month, he had to have an amputation. So he got an amputation of his left leg, and he took it from uh, two inches uh, above, uh, below the knee, and his leg was amputated. 2010, he's about 68 years old. Tennis is his life, still do camps and stuff, has faith in Christ, got his left leg amputated. So Romans 8, 28, how does that, how does that fit in that? And how, how does that fit in your life? Well, what we need to do is look and see exactly what the verse says. This is what it says in the English Standard Version. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. What I want us to do is let's just look at each word, each phrase of this verse. In context, it's in Romans chapter 8. It's being written by the Apostle Paul. He's writing to the church at Rome. Chapter 8 is one of the great chapters in all the scriptures. And it's talking about life with the Holy Spirit. When you receive Christ as Savior and God's Spirit comes into your life, what should that life look like? And he talks about it. And in the midst of that, verse 28 is the one that jumps out to us because it's such an amazing promise. So this is the way we're going to break it down. Number one, first thing I want you to look at is the certainty of this promise. The certainty of this promise. The first words in this verse say, and we know. And we know. It doesn't say, and we believe, and we feel, and we think. It's, and we know. Now, what is so interesting is that verse 28 comes after verse 26. Pretty good, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. And see, some of you are out there going, you know, that does make sense, Danny. It does come after verse 26. But look at what verse 26 says. In verse 26, he says, Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought. But the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. Let me ask this question. Have you ever been in a position where you just didn't know how to pray for something? You ever been there? Show me your hand. You ever been there? You just say, I need to pray for it, don't know how to do it. He says that's normal. And when you don't know how to pray for something, it says the Holy Spirit within you will, through the groanings, be able to pray that prayer, direct you as to how you are to pray. We don't know what to pray for. 
But then he comes back two verses later and say, hey, you may not know what to pray for, but this is something that we do know. There's the certainty of this promise. Never, never take this promise and downgrade it and say, well, sometimes it's true, sometimes it's not. And we know the certainty of this promise. All right? Second of all, the condition of this promise. There are some conditions that have been placed on this promise, and you need to listen very clearly. Because in this verse, there are bookends. And this is what he says. And we know. And we know what? And we know. For those who love God. When it says, for those who love God, that is directed to Christians. To those who love God. And on the back end, it says, and are called according to his purpose. You see two ends of salvation. God is the one that calls us to salvation. We respond to salvation and we show our love for God. So on bookends, he's telling you this promise is for believers. This is a believer's only promise. And for those who love God, he put strict conditions on it. He didn't say, and for all the world? Or for those who like to do good? No. He says, and for those who love God, For those that are called according to his purposes, that is believers. So let me tell you, church family, for those who've made that decision, received Christ as Savior, this promise is for you. And But see, there's some of you that are sitting here and you say, well, Danny, hey, I'm sitting here in this church, but but I'm no Christian. I'm not checking that box. I'm not real certain. I'm kind of wondering. I'm thinking. And and I've heard where people say, hey, all things work together for good. I just got to tell you, this verse does not apply to you. It doesn't apply to you. And as Christians, we need to be really careful how we use this verse. You cannot go up to a non-believer who's going through a difficult time, put your arm around him and say, hey, guess what? All things work together for good. They don't for them. It's strictly for believers. And so as you hear that verse, there's two parts of it that you've seen. Those who love God, those who are called according to his purpose. So I want to talk for just a moment. Any of you here that have never made this decision for Christ, look on that back end, those who are called according to his purpose. What it means is that God is the one that initiates salvation. You don't just wake up and decide that you want to come to God. What God does is he calls you. He is constantly calling you. He desires for you to come into a relationship with him. It is his desire that all people would be saved. And so even as I'm speaking right now, God's Spirit, I believe, is speaking to your heart, and he's calling you to say, I want you to become a part of my family. And so that call is there. And then on that first part of the verse, it says, and for those who love God. Because you get to that point to where when you feel called by God, then all of a sudden you realize that, you know, the one that created me, the creator God, He loves me so much, and he loves you so much that he sent his own son, Jesus Christ, to die for your sins. Because you are a broken person, even as I am a broken person. And it's because sin has entered into my life, and I've done things against the holy God that has separated me from him. And so God says, I'm going to send my son, the ultimate expression of love. He will die on a cross, and he will pay the penalty for your sins. But the story doesn't end there, because three days later... He raised from the dead. He conquered sin. He conquered death. And he just gives this amazing invitation to invite you to come and be a part of his family. And so as you look at this verse and you say, well, that one doesn't apply to me, it can apply to you and it can apply to you today. 
Because right here in this service, you can make that decision and ask Christ to come into your heart. And when we finish this, the service today, I'm going to be here at the front. We've got some other of our staff will be here at the front. You just come down and talk to us. Just come on down and talk to us. And we'll be glad to walk you through that and to explain that, that decision. That is great news. So you need to understand, when you take a look at this, the certainty of the promises, and we know. And then we understand that the condition is the promise. It is strictly for those who are believers. And then it talks about the scope of the promise. Look at the scope of this promise. All things. All things. And we know, for those who love God, all things. All things. Okay, we're going to do a, like a Greek lesson here, okay? You know, New Testament's written in Greek. I'm going to ask you this, and you give me your best shot. When you think of the word all, what do you think? You guys are good. Wow, you guys are good. It took me three years of seminary, uh, and in just 30 seconds, you picked up on it. All things. When he says all things, he means all things, everything. All things, that's the scope of the promise. You know what that includes? In verse 18 of chapter 8, he says, he talks about our sufferings. It includes our sufferings. Look at verse 35. If you look in verse 35 of chapter 8, he says this. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? He says, no, we are more than conquerors in all these things. Every one of those things are part of the all things. This is reality. This is life. Tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, sword. This is how he lived. This is how many of us live. We have these struggles. And it says all things. All things. That means our sins, our failures, the joys of this life. All things. God has a purpose for every experience, whether pleasant or difficult. All things. So keep that in mind. You cannot take this verse and just parse it and say, well, just these things or just those things. It says all things. And we know, this is a certainty of the promise. And we know that for those that love God, it's for us as believers. The scope is all things. And then we get to the process of this promise. And it is work together. All things work together. The Greek word for work together is where we get our English word synergy. Synergy. You know what synergy is? Synergy is like when you have that synergy in your work team. Everybody's working together. Synergy is when you bring individuals together. They work together as a group. And what they come up with a whole is better than the sum of the individual parts. So if we just had these individuals doing this, they would have accomplished this and this and this. But when you bring the whole team together and there's this synergy of the team, what happens is you accomplish even greater things. All things work together. So what happens is that God is working all these things together. It's incredible. You can't even put your mind around it. That in the midst of his sovereignty and his grace and his power, he takes all the things, the good, the bad, the hurtful, the helpful, the ones that are painful, the ones that are pleasurable. He takes all of these things and he works them together. It's amazing. 
You know, it's not like that, that you think that God's just there in, in heaven and waiting for you to make that decision for Christ. And when you make that decision for Christ, and then he just sits back and says, okay, one day when you die, you'll spend eternity with me in heaven. It is amazing that the power and the Spirit of God is working through every individual life here. And that all things in your life, he is working these things together. Working these things together for good. We can't even imagine it. And we can't fathom it. I was doing some research and I I saw an article that was written in Leadership Magazine about 20, a little over 20 years ago. Gosh, almost 30 years ago. And uh, 20 years ago. And uh, in the article, he told the true story of a pastor whose son had committed suicide. And um, he took a number of weeks off, and then the pastor came back to the pulpit. And the text of that day was Romans 8, 28. And with great emotion, he read this text. And then this is what he said. I cannot make my son's death fit into this passage. It is impossible for me to see how anything good can come out of it. Yet I realize I only see in part, and I only know in part. He said, it's like the miracle of the shipyard. Almost every part of our great ships are made of steel. And if you were to take any single part of that vessel, be it a steel plate from the hull or steel from the rudder, and you threw it into the ocean, it would sink. Steel doesn't float. But when the shipbuilder is finished, and when that last plate has been riveted in place, that massive ship still floats. Then he concluded his message by saying this. Taken by itself, my son's suicide is senseless. You throw it into the sea of Romans 8:28, and it sinks. But when the divine shipbuilder has finally finished, even this tragedy will build together God's unsinkable purpose. It's hard to grasp. But Scripture says, and we know, for those who love God, all things work together. Our Father is working all things together, and then comes your key word, and that is the purpose of the promise, and that is good. God works all things together for good. Now, for most of us, when we think that word good, the first words we think of is comfort, convenience, wealth, happiness. Am I speaking to a group that thinks? That's what I would think. When I first heard this verse, I said, hey, it works all things for good. That means things are going to be good. I'm going to be happy. I'm going to be comfortable. I'm going to have enough money. Everything's going to be great. But you know, that, that's not what it means. It doesn't mean that when you lose your job, you'll automatically find another one. It doesn't mean that when the doctor says you have a life-threatening illness, automatically you'll be healed. 
It doesn't mean when you break up with one girl that you turn the corner and you got one that's even better right over here for you to start dating. It, it, doesn't, it doesn't mean that. You see, this verse is, is not just about our happiness. And we need to set aside our self-centered human definition of good and see what the Apostle Paul meant when he said good. All things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. Then you need to go to verse 29 and 30. Take a look at this. In verse 29 it says, For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also <clears throat> justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. What he is saying here is that when I say all things work together for good, he says God's purpose is for you to be conformed to the image of Christ. And the purpose of this promise, when we say, hey, all these things work together for good, it doesn't mean that all of a sudden everything's going to be convenient, everything's just going to be happy, happy, happy times. What it means is, is that God is going to work together all these things, our successes, our failures, uh, our joys and our tears, takes them all together, and he's constantly working it so that you and I will be conformed to the image of Christ, that we are to be like Jesus. You see, this is not a verse, again, designed for happiness. The purpose in turning everything to good is so that we can become like Christ and that we can reflect him in our life. You know, when I look at this verse, one of the things that excites me is to know that God has an eternal plan, and he has a plan for each one of our lives. And so he takes all the things that happen in our life and he's shaping them and he's molding them and he's using them and he's working them together for our good so that we could be more like Christ. And then when, when we find things in our life that God allows to come into our life through his permissible will. And, and I, I was kind of smiling when I was thinking about the tennis racket and that, you know, when you have something hard like a tennis ball, it'll just bounce right off. And some of those things will come and you just hit them this way and that way. But there are other things that would sift through here. And it's like, like what God does is, is he lets some things come and he protects you from some things. But then there's some things that come in that God allows to sift through. And this is what's called God's permissible will. To where he allows some things to sift through and he allows those things to sift through. Not so that you just feel pain. But he allows them to sift through so that he can work them together for your good, which is to conform you to the image of Christ. And if everything was always cheerful, happy, everything works out, there are aspects of who God is that we would never know. If I never experienced failure, I would never really know the compassion and the mercy of God. And if I'd never messed up and sinned, I'd never understand what repentance was and, again, what forgiveness was. It's not a license to sin. It just says that when these things happen, we begin to see sides of God's mercy and who he is that we would have never seen otherwise. And he's saying to us in this verse, I'm working all these things together so that you can be conformed to the image of God. 
And, um, and when these come, uh, you know, one of my favorite verses, or not verses, favorite statements is Charles Haddon Spurgeon when he says, when you can't trace God's hand, you can trust God's heart. And this is how we come to a Romans 8, 28. God, I know you're telling me in here that all these things are work together for good, but I'm telling you, I just can't see it right now. So when I can't trace your hand, I've got to trust your heart. How do you trust his heart? It's because I've walked down roads with you before that have been very difficult, and I have trusted your heart, and you have always been faithful. And there's some of you that are walking down some roads right now, and you're saying, I cannot trace God's hand in this at all. But somewhere along the way, I've got to trust his heart. I've got to trust his heart, and I've got to claim this promise because I love him, he loves me, and he says, I will work all these things out, and I'll work all these things out for good. And it is during these times that we have that greater dependency on him. And it's during these times that we understand more compassion, mercy, faithfulness, justice, all things. And the ultimate good of this is to bring glory to God, to advance his kingdom, to make you holy, to fill you with love, to bring about humility, to develop your patience, to cultivate your trust in God. God is doing all these things to get you to that point to where you're conformed to the image of Christ. And that's really what it's about. You know, the best illustration in the Old Testament is Joseph. And his story is told in this light. Because Joseph, uh, he, had, uh, he had a bunch of brothers. And uh, his dad uh, liked Joseph best. And gave him some favoritism. Gave him this beautiful little coat of many colors. And so the brothers didn't like him. And when they went out one day to do their work, they decided that now was a good time to get rid of their brother, so they threw him down into a pit. Then when they threw him down in a pit, they were trying to figure out, do we leave him here? Do we kill him? What do we do? And all of a sudden, some slave traders came by and they said, tell you what we'll do, we'll sell him. So they took him, they sold him, and sent him off. Took that beautiful coat, they killed an animal, wrapped its uh, blood in the coat, went back to their dad, went, <laughs> our little brother's died. And they began to feign these tears and how terrible it is. And so the father just began to weep and mourn over the son that had died. But in the midst time, in the midst of all this Poor Joseph, he's, he's with some slave traders. They go to Egypt. When they go to Egypt, they sell him there. So now all of a sudden, he's just a slave. Now, he was with a pretty good influential dad back over here uh, in, in the desert area. But now I'm in Egypt, and I'm just a slave. But what he did was he was such a good slave and, and a follower of God that, uh, that he worked in, in kind of head and shoulders above everyone else and showed a lot of leadership ability. And so one of the administrators put him in his home and he gave him, gave him responsibilities in his home. But while he was in the home, the wife of the administrator began to see him and she wanted to be able to have an affair with him. And she kept making these advances toward him and he kept pushing her away and finally he did it and he said, you know, I'm not going to do this. And, and she got mad at him and she accused him of raping her. And so when the administrator's wife makes that kind of accusation, they're going to believe her and not Joseph. So they take him, and he's lost that position, and now he's thrown into prison. So now he's sitting in prison. And he's sitting in prison. His brothers did him wrong by throwing him in a pit. Then they sold him to some slave traders. Then this woman made false accusations. He's finding himself sitting in prison. Two men have a dream. God gave him the ability to be able to interpret their dreams, and he told one, hey, bad news, you're going to die. Good news, you're going to live. Sure enough, a while later, 
the dream came true. The guy that was to die, he died. The one that was to live, he lived. And he got promoted to work back up there uh, with Pharaoh. It was this baker up there and working with him and doing great work. And so he's, he's working. And right before he left, Joseph says, do not forget me. Tell him about me and tell him I'm the guy that did the dream. He says, sure. He got up there. He forgot about him. Didn't even think about him. Time passes. Pharaoh wakes up in the middle of the night, calls all of his spiritual gurus, and he says, I've had this horrible dream. I've got to get an answer to it. I can't sleep at night. Let me tell you what it is. He tells them the dream. They go, we're clueless. We don't have any idea. And, you know, during those days, Pharaoh says, you know, I can replace you guys. And that doesn't mean to look for your resume. That is to start looking for a gravesite. You know, I can take you out. So everybody's a little bit on the nervous side. Then all of a sudden, this man who had had his dream interpreted by Joseph says, hey, there was a guy in prison that did this, and he interpreted my dream. So they bring Joseph up. They bring him up, and they say, can you interpret the dream? And he says, no, but God can. And through God's power, tell me what it is, and I'll tell you what God says. He tells him the dream. Bottom line, these next seven years are going to be seven years of plenty, better than we've ever seen before. But following that, there will be seven years of famine worse than we've ever seen before. So what we're telling you is when all the, the good stuff is happening, you better be storing it. Take the grain and store it. Because once you store it, the next seven years, there will be people coming from all over that are looking for food. And we will be the people that can save them. He says, that's a great plan. We just need someone that can carry it out. And he looked to him and he says, you will carry it out. You will be the second most powerful man in the entire kingdom. Wow. That's quite a progression, isn't it? Well, as he's sitting in that position of being in charge of of all that food, his family, who's beginning to starve because of the famine, began to come in. And to make a long story short, they all come in. And when they come in and he finally reveals himself to them, they're just shocked that he's still alive. And his dad was really shocked that he was alive. And I'm sure he had a few discussions with the brothers um, uh, sometime there in Egypt. And he brings all his family in and he brings his family in and he saves his family. And he saves Israel. As they come and they are fed. When the father died, the sons were nervous because they said, Now that dad's died, that's our protection. Joseph's going to get mad and he's going to take it out on us. And he says a verse to them that is huge. And it's found in Genesis chapter 50, verse 20. And he says this As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. Now, see, some of us would have so much anger built up in us. But he says, as for you, you meant evil against me. But God bent it for good to bring it about that many people should be kept alive. What is he saying? All things work together for good. On a global stage, that is huge. But can I just focus in on a second, on an individual stage? If none of this had happened to Joseph... He would have still been there with his father and all of his brothers, and they would have been tending the sheep and handling all the things that they're doing over here. And who knows what would have happened to him over those years? Who would have known if that leadership gift that he had would have ever been exercised? Who would know that all the abilities that he had would have ever been exercised? The only way those gifts were able to come out to the forefront is for him to go through some horrible times. 
And what is so strong about this story is that when you get to the other end of it for Joseph, he's not looking back at the difficult times, the accusations and the way his brothers did him and all this stuff. He's got a view of God and said, you know what? God's the one that made this happen. And because he made it happen, lots of people are alive today. That's Old Testament. New Testament, Jesus himself. All things work together for good. And when you look at God's son, when he sent Jesus here, you look at his life, what happened those last few months of his life? People were cruel to him. Relationships were broken. People were jealous. People said things about him that were not true. Physically, he was beaten. He was disappointed. He had relationships that were broken. He had one disappointment after another. And all of these things came on top of him. And yet, God took all of those things and he worked them for his good, your good, and his glory. Because of all those things that happened to Jesus, he went to that cross and he died on the cross for our sins. And where everyone else would have looked at that and said, all these things worked together and it was terrible. No, it was for the good. And that was that salvation was offered to every one of us and that God was glorified. So we just need to keep in mind that God has got this amazing plan that is unfolding for you that will bring glory to him. If I had to just sort of summarize that verse, this is how I would word it. God will take everything that comes into your life and he will use it to profit you for your good as you grow to be more like Christ. One more time. God will take everything that comes into your life and he will use it to profit you for your good as you grow to be more like Christ. We're to come away from this text with a renewed assurance of God and his love and his plan for our life. So what about Dennis Ralston? My tennis buddy. Yeah, I get to play doubles against Dennis Ralston. Now, he had two knee replacements. You understand that uh, over there. And he was kind of a little bit of a hero there. So So what happened to him with that amputation? 1999, when he got the second knee replacement, he had the knee replacement in November. His goal was to go to Wimbledon in June and be the first man with two knee replacements to play in Wimbledon. And he did. But when he had his knee replacement, they began to give him some pain medication. They put him on Oxycontin and some other stuff, I think, all these different things. And as they began to put him on these pain meds, he increased them so that he would be able to play Wimbledon. And when he finished playing Wimbledon, He didn't get off of them. There were some that says you need to cut back. Sad to say, there were two doctors that say you need to take this the rest of your life. You'll always need to have this for your knees. And so he became addicted. And he was addicted to pain medication from 1999 all the way up to 2010. In 2010, when he had his foot repaired, staph infection, then he had to have the amputation. When he had the amputation of his leg, it was like a wake-up call. He sat down with his wife and his family, and as they began to talk to him, they said, you got to get a handle on this. And so he checked into the Betty Ford Center, and he overcame that addiction. 
I heard an interview that he gave just a couple years ago. And this is the exact statement he made. The Lord changes things in your life for a reason. The Lord changes things in your life for a reason. Romans 8, 28, all things work together for good. The Lord changes things in your life for a reason. He says, losing my leg saved my life. If I had never lost my leg, I would still be on painkillers and I could have overdosed and I would be dead today. But because I lost my leg, I was able to overcome the painkillers and I'm no longer addicted. And I think we got a picture of him today. If you got a picture of him, there he is, getting after it uh, over there. About 70 years old, getting after it, still leading camps, still going strong. But his word was, and even in that interview, is that if I didn't lose my leg, I would have lost my life. It was the best thing that ever happened to me. I got this second chance. You see, only God sees the plan in the big picture. He's the only one that knows our ultimate good. So as a congregation, this is what I want you to remember. As we walk through life, remember that God is working all these things together for good. We're down here on the floor, and it's hard to see his plan. But he sees the big plan. We have to trust him and to know it is for our good so that we can be conformed to the image of Christ. And the reason this is victorious is because Jesus lives, and he is alive today. We're going to move into a worship set to where we want to sing the song, He Lives, and to sing this amazing story about that Jesus Christ, though he has died, today he lives. And because he lives, we can live a life that brings honor and glory to him and to the Father. So I'm going to, do you want us to stand when they sing? That'd be good? Yeah. Why don't we stand? I want you to stand. Logan and Michael are going to lead us. Let's just sing from our heart and let's worship our God who lives. <laughs>